don't know me, my name is Pastor John. And if you don't know you, me, you might not know that I really enjoy watching movies. Uh, some films I like revisiting again and again. And sometimes uh, I read about movies and learn that a movie's anniversary comes up. A movie's been out for a certain amount of time. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really special to hear that. I learned recently that last year, actually, was the 50th anniversary, 50 years of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that came out in 1971. If you haven't seen it, it's based off the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I'm not going to go into every single detail about it, but very short version. Uh, There's a special chocolate factory that has a contest to find a golden ticket, and five lucky kids get a golden ticket. They're able to have a tour of this magical chocolate factory. But as these kids go in, some of them have a lot of issues going on in their lives, and they end up being removed from the group throughout this tour. One particular child is a young lady named Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt. And Veruca is particularly spoiled. Her parents give her whatever she wants. And they're in one particular room where there's geese that lay golden chocolate eggs, and she wants one of these geese for herself and sings a whole song about it and ends up being removed from the group. And after that happens, every time, but particularly this time, Mr. Wonka has these little special helpers named Oompa Loompas, orange-faced men, who sing a little song there. It's a silly movie, but go with it. And this is the song they sing after what happens to Veruca. They say, who do you blame when your kid is a brat, pampered and spoiled like a Siamese cat? Blaming the kids is a lie and a shame. You know exactly who's to blame, the mother and the father. And then they say, oompa loompa doompa dee doo. Da, if you're not spoiled, you will go far. You will live in happiness too, like the Oompa Loompa Doompity Doo. Why did I quote that? Because I couldn't resist actually saying Oompa Loompa Doompity Doo in a, a sermon. Never thought I'd get to do that. But also, also because this concern they have in the song about a child being spoiled is actually the same concern God has for us as his children. And the passage we're going to look at today, Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11, talks about that. It talks about how having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is better than being spoiled, than always getting our way, than everything going the way that we want it to go. Our passage is going to tell us that we really need to check our perspective and realize that God is the one who disciplines us, and He disciplines His children, those that He loves. He does that because there's good results of that discipline in our lives. Those good results are holiness and righteousness that is seen and demonstrated through our lives and character. And so our text is going to tell us that when God disciplines us, we should keep going, we should persevere, all while keeping our eyes on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, then look at verses 3 through 11. You can also use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. Or we'll also put the words up on the screen. And I'd ask that once you are there in Hebrews 12, if you're able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word? And once we stand, we're, I'm going to read this passage for us today. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The author has been talking about Jesus, and he says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In verse 5, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he quotes the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10 says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Lord, we're well aware that, that life is often hard, it's difficult, things don't go the way we want. God, I pray those moments would just change our perspective, help us to see that you are doing something that maybe we haven't recognized before. As we look at your word today, God, remind us of the truth that you discipline your children and you do it for their good. God, you want to do something good in our lives. You want to produce holiness, righteousness, a life that reflects you. So Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would inspire us to keep going, to press on, and to consider your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that as we talk about this, he would be the focus of our time together. As your word says in the Gospel of John 3.30, May he increase, may I decrease. May we see more and more of Jesus in our time together so that we can see your purpose for discipline. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're using an outline, that's what we're going to do first. First, a passage is going to challenge us to check our perspective. But to do that, let's look at this question first. What is discipline? I think before we go too far into this, we need to take some time to define our terms and really focus on what are we talking about this morning? What do we mean when we say discipline? Well, my passage uses words like discipline or chastening. It's referring to instruction, training, correction in our lives that we are called to persevere through. Now, when I say things like that discipline is instruction, training, correction, you say, well, why don't, why don't you say training at the beginning, Pastor John? Why did it lead with discipline? That's such a harsh word. Yes, but the result is the same. There's action in our lives. Something is happening to us for a purpose of changing us and helping us to grow. 
Now, since we're talking about discipline, as I was reflecting on this beforehand, before I decided to jump in, I thought I really need to give a couple qualifications, a couple caveats, some things we should think about before we begin. So these aren't in your notes, but it's, it's three kind of truths, kind of basis I want you to have in your mind before we move forward. The first we need to remember is that any suffering or hardship that we experience in life, it's ultimately the result of sin. Suffering is ultimately the result of sin. Sin is our decision to rebel against God. God has told us, hey, here's what you should do. Here's what helps you to be in a relationship with me. And sin is us saying, no, I don't want to do that. And every single person does that. We reject God. And because of that, our world is corrupted, infected with sin. There's suffering, there's disease, there's hardship, there's hurt because there is sin in our world. We're going to talk about how God uses that suffering. God uses that to discipline us, to shape us for his purposes. But I want to be clear that the cause of it is because we have sinned and rebelled against God. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is by using this word, I know that not everyone hears what our author intends because some of what people call discipline is really just abuse. Sometimes people use the word discipline, but what they do is they abuse and hurt others. In this world that's infected by sin, good, godly ideas that the Lord has given us, things like authority and discipline, things that are supposed to help us, supposed to be good. In this world of sin, they're sadly often twisted to abuse and mistreat other people. And so I wanted to talk about this before we really look at what Scripture says, because if you're here this morning and you've experienced some form of abuse, whether that's, that's physical, sexual, mental, emotional, someone has used their power over you to hurt you and mistreat you, I just want to say, I'm so sorry that's happened. That, that is not God's intention for authority. That's not God's intention for what discipline is going to be. And I'm so sorry that that's your experience. If abuse has happened to you, you should know that abuse is a lie. It's a lie about the character of God. It's a lie about what God's authority means and what it should represent in the world. Abuse is an attack on the image of God that is in each and every human being. And so when I talk about discipline, I'm not at all talking about abuse. Abuse is not discipline. Abuse tears someone down. Discipline, particularly when God uses it, is for building us up. So we're not talking about that at all. And then I also want to clarify that today, in this passage, we're focusing on God's discipline, how God works in each of our individual lives. We're not really looking at how or whether or not parents should discipline their children or what that looks like. We're, we're not really talking about that today. Other places in Scripture may speak about that, but our passage isn't directly addressing that. Our focus is on God's discipline, the training, the correction he brings into our lives. Why does he do this? Well, sometimes we do something wrong. We sin against God, and he'll work through circumstances, suffering, hardship to help us to realize that and turn to him. Other times, these things happen to us just because he's shaping us, he's molding us, he's helping us to grow in a way we wouldn't have been able to grow without it. And I think our job primarily is not to figure out, all right, did, did I sin? Did I mess up? Well, what's going on? Instead, it's to see what is God's purpose in this discipline? How can I grow? So with all that background, 
Let's turn to our text now. Now that we understand what discipline is, let's really examine our perspective. Verse 3 talks about how Jesus endured hostility and opposition. What happened to Jesus? Well, he was arrested. He was mocked for who he is. He was beaten. He was tortured. And then he was killed. And his example helps us to not grow weary or faint-hearted or discouraged. His example challenges us not to lose heart and not to give up when we suffer. Verse 3 in our passage said, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that, why should we think about that? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And it may help us to remember exactly what's happening here in the Bible. When we read the Bible, we can't just pull little things out and say, oh, I'm going to take this or take that. There's a context. It fits in somewhere. Right now we're in the Bible in a letter, a letter to the Hebrew people. This is a letter by somebody writing to a church of people who were from a Jewish background. They were used to practice Judaism, but now they were followers of Jesus. And that's what this letter is addressed to. And it seems that these people were struggling. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. They thought the race was too hard. It's too hard to follow Christ. They were experiencing mocking and persecution and hardship. And they said, I'm not sure if it's worth it. We'll read in the next chapter, chapter 13, some of them had been thrown in prison. They were arrested, locked up, and jailed because of their faith in Christ. And our author is trying to encourage them with this verse, that they may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's using words similar to what Jesus said. Jesus spoke to a church in the city of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And Jesus said to them, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He's encouraging them. But at the same time, our passage here also has a bit of a, a challenge, a kind of rebuke for these Hebrew believers. Because our author is saying Jesus endured through hostility to the point that he died. But the Hebrews, at least at at this point, the Hebrew Christians, they're not really experiencing that. They're striving, their struggle to live for God against sin in a fallen world had not led to their death. Verse 4 tells us this. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. They've gone through a lot. They probably mocked, people made fun of them, relationships were broken, maybe they lost jobs because of their faith. And yes, some of them were in prison, but at this point, when the author's writing, they had not been killed for their faith. Or at least, as the verse says, you have not yet experienced this. Church history will tell us that a few years or decades after this, death and martyrdom did come to many followers of Christ. But for now, Their suffering was more about pressure, intimidation. Those who didn't like their faith made life hard, difficult, and uncomfortable for them. And the Hebrews wanted to give up. They said, this is just too hard. But our author is telling them, no, I believe you can go further. You can continue to follow Christ. Because if Jesus could endure to death, and you have a genuine relationship with him, then you can endure too. As one scholar, F.F. Bruce, put it, Their present hardships were a token of their heavenly Father's love for them, the means by which he was training them to be more truly his sons. That's what authors are saying. God is working 
in this. And that's why I think that this passage, and really this book of Hebrews, is so relevant to us today. Because unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world, we are not experiencing death. We're not being killed for our faith here in this context. And so that means that any persecution we experience is not as bad as what Jesus went through, and not as bad as even these Hebrews here. We're not being consistently locked up for our faith. Many of our brothers and sisters suffer far worse than we do. We're not in prison. Yes, sometimes things are hard. Sometimes things are uncomfortable because of our faith. But we are not at the place that they were there. Now, you could say, well, Pastor John, surely that's coming. Maybe, but it's impossible to know if that would happen for certain in our lifetime. What we do know is we are called to endure, following the example of our Lord and Savior. That's a perspective we need on discipline, is we can endure through this because Christ went before us. And with that right perspective, we can now embrace the truth of what is happening here. The truth is these hardships that believers in Christ experience don't catch God off guard because God actually uses them to discipline his children. God disciplines his children. Verses 5 and 6 from our passage are a quote from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. They're an exhortation of encouraging words from a father to a son. Our author, even though he says these words are from one father to one son, he sees them as God speaking to all of his people and that his words could comfort all of the Hebrews he's writing to in their challenges, their struggles to follow Christ. Let me read verses 5 and 6. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement that addresses you as sons? And here is the quote from the Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in this quote, we are told not to despise, not to make light, not to regard lightly God's discipline or chastening. In other words, we're not to push aside what God's doing in our lives. Say, God, not today. I don't want this happening in my life today. We're not to ignore the lessons that God is trying to teach us. As we're soon going to see in just a few verses, God's discipline is not pointless. There is a purpose behind it. But on the other hand, he also tells them, do not be weary, discouraged. Don't grow faint. Don't lose heart when you're reproved, rebuked, or corrected by God. And here he's speaking directly to the temptation of the Hebrews and probably our temptation sometimes today to turn away from the faith, say, I I don't want to follow God anymore. It's too hard. Our author is saying, no, no, don't do that. Continue to follow God. Continue to grow in the faith. Why should they do that? Because he says God's the one actually behind this. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises those he receives and accepts as his children. Now, some translations with that word chastise, they may have something else. They may have, some have scourges, which is fine. Others have punishes. I'm not really the biggest fan of punishes there, because I think we need to be clear. God doesn't punish Christians. Their sin was already punished by Christ. Christ, when he died, he took our punishment for sins. God doesn't punish us, pour out his wrath 
on his people. He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. So God may bring hardship to, into our lives if we know him, but that is discipline to correct us, not to punish us. It's for the purpose of helping us grow, not out of a vindictive anger. It comes out of God's love for his people. The point the author is making here is that God's discipline proves that we are his children. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. He chastises his children that he has accepted. It's a sign that we are a part of God's family. If we're experiencing hardship, that should be a source of confidence, encouragement. I know God and he's doing something in my life. We see this multiple times in Scripture. The Old Testament, Psalm 94, says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Yeah, you read that right. Blessed is the one that God disciplines. That's not what I think of when I think of blessed, but that's how Scripture describes blessed, because God is working. God is using that opportunity to turn that person more closer to Him. Or if you prefer a New Testament one, if you prefer to hear from Jesus, this is Jesus himself in the book of Revelation. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus talking, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, repent, turn from any sin because that is the purpose of that discipline. Back in our passage, verse 7 says that God has allowed the Hebrew Christians suffering in order to train them to be more like Jesus. He uses the illustration of a father to make this point. Verse 7 tells us it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now this is a moment where we have to remember that this is an old document we're reading. This is a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago. And in that day, it would be unthinkable for a child to not be disciplined by his or her father, but especially the boys, because the boys would be the one who would, who would have to take up the father's role, take over whatever business he had. The culture would have expected the father would have taught the son what to do and how to live. I know that's not everyone's experience today, but for most of our author's audience, it was. He was saying, most of you have had a father who has disciplined you in some way. The assumption of the day, everyone kind of agreed that discipline was an act of love by a good parent for their beloved child. That was the mind frame of the day, and that's why our author says that. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? We can see this reflected in the Old Testament. Book of Proverbs says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. But our author is not focused on the relationship between a father and kids. Our author is focused on our relationship with God. And he says, God has the same fatherly relationship with us. And again, he's not making this up. He's getting it from the Old Testament as well. Book of Deuteronomy says, know then in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. It was a lesson throughout all of Scripture that God's children will always be disciplined by him because that's what a father did. A father loved his children, wanted what was best for him, and guided and directed them to live for him. 
So if we're being disciplined by God, if we're experiencing challenging situations in our life, then take heart because that's evidence that we are his child. It's evidence that he is a father treating us as a father should. And I know this is how fathers should treat their children. And as some of you know, I've been a father just for a few months, and I'm not looking forward to beginning that journey of discipline. But I can even now see the need of it. You may see my daughter and think she's the cutest thing in the world, and, and I, I, I think she is too, but, but I can already see a little heart that even in that young age has been corrupted by sin. She sees what she wants, and that is her sole focus, and everything she tries to do is get that thing that she wants. Now, she's at an age now that can't really start that discipline because she wouldn't understand what was happening, but very soon that day is coming. And I need to do that because I love her, because I care for her, because I want her to understand how we are to live and function in this world. I want what's best for her. Well, friends, that's the same heart God has for us. He looks at us as his children, and he sees us and says, no, that's not what's best for you. Let me help you and direct you in a way that will actually help you to grow. That's what verse 8, it talks about in our text, that all true believers should experience, they should be participating in God's discipline. They should expect it to happen to them. Verse 8 says, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Discipline and hardship is not a sign that God has abandoned us. It's a sign that he really loves us, that he cares for us. It's also a warning to us. If we claim to be a follower of Christ, but our life is easy, there's not really hardship in it, then we should ask some questions about how we're following our Lord. One scholar, Charles Hodge, put it this way, if you do not suffer, you are to suspect that you may not belong to God's family. Now, he's being very harsh and direct there. Obviously, sometimes we have great seasons of joy in our life. We have seasons of peace, contentment, and worship of God. And just because someone's suffering, that doesn't mean, oh, they must be a great Christian because they're suffering so much. It's not a one-to-one comparison there. But at the same time, Scripture is clear that God uses suffering, challenges, and hardship to, to challenge each of us, to help us to grow. And so when life is good, we should praise God that life is good. We should praise Him for His grace. But we should also remember that the normal experience of God's people is suffering, is hardship, is difficulty. And that normal experience leads to character growth. One New Testament passage that talks about this is in the book of 1 Peter. Peter's actually talking about the devil at the beginning of this sentence. And he says, resist him, firm in your faith, What's happening? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All believers are experiencing this. But here's his encouragement. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yes, it's hard, but God's grace is coming. In our passage, our author makes that same connection in verse 9. He uses a lesser to greater argument. He's saying, if earthly fathers disciplined and corrected us, then God, our heavenly father, has the right to do that too. 
Again, verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, so shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We should respect, submit, be subject to God because He disciplines us for our good. After all, He is the great God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the one who can give us true, lasting, eternal life through a relationship with Him. Oh, friends, He is our good Father who we can trust to do right. As I was reading about this, I read a piece from a pastor, F.B. Meyer, and it was, there was a really long, really long quote that was great, and I cut it in in the smaller portion. It's still long, so I apologize for that, but I think it's a great perspective on how we think when we're going through these trials. So he's talking about this text, and he says, when we come to understand that nothing can happen to us except as our Father permits, and that though our trials may originate in some lower source, somebody sinning against us, somebody hurting us, or something else happening to us, even though that may be where they start, They become God's will for us as soon as they are permitted to reach us through the defense of his presence. Meaning that when God allows it to come, that is his will and purpose for us. And so what should we do then? He says, oh, then we smile through our tears. We realize that each moment's pain originates in our Father's heart. And we are at rest. He goes on to say, much of the anguish passes away from life's trials as soon as we discern and can see our Father's hand. Now, I know that that's that's very difficult and hard in the midst of a really trying time to say, well, where's God in this? I know that personally it's so difficult to see that and to understand. But his word tells me that it's true that he is there and involved, and that someday we will see and understand his purpose in it, that he used these things to mold and shape us. So let me ask you, though, do you know that loving Father, that God? The way you know him is by turning away from sin, believing and trusting in him. He is a God worth knowing because he loves in a way that's greater than we can comprehend. Now, for believers, if this is all true, then if we're experiencing a hard time, we should first ask God, God, have I sinned against you? Is there something, uh, something that needs to change in my life? A- ask Him that. Ask how He wants you to grow. Ask if there's sin, and then particularly focus on God, how are you trying to help me grow in this moment? If you're a brother or sister in Christ, I-, I have good news for you. Your life is not random. It's not random things that happen to you. Your life is being shaped by your creator for his good purposes. And so in painful and trying times, you can still trust him because he is doing good in our lives. Now, you may say, Pastor, what is that good? What is the good God's trying to do in my life? Well, let me tell you, God's discipline has good results. God's discipline has good results. Earthly fathers, they discipline their children while they are young as they think best. Earthly fathers will not get everything right. They'll make mistakes. They'll they'll be too harsh in one moment, too lenient in another. They only do the best they can, but, but God is perfect. He's the perfect heavenly father. Look at the beginning of verse 10 in our passage. 
It says, they, earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed good to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us for our good. That means for our guaranteed profit. God knows exactly what you need, and he brings it about in our lives. Once more from F.B. Meyer, he said, God has a purpose in every pain he permits us to feel. God has a purpose in every pain. If you are a follower of Christ, you never, ever meaninglessly suffer. There is no meaningless pain in your life if you are a follower of Christ. If you're not, if you're not a follower of Christ, then there may be some that serves no purpose. There may be a lot. There may be an eternity that you experience that. But if we know Jesus, every pain and suffering has a purpose in our lives. If we want to get this from Scripture, Psalm 119 speaks to this. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He realized that this suffering has happened to do something for him. Friends, this is a hard lesson to learn, but it's one that each of us needs to grasp if we're to thrive and live for our Lord in this life. But let me give you a, a kind of a caution with that. It's a lesson we each need to learn, but these things I'm talking about this morning are not the thing to throw in somebody's face when they're in the midst of suffering. It's not really the time to bring it up. If somebody takes the time to be open and honest, like, I'm really struggling with this and this in my life, the wrong response would be to go, well, God must be doing something good in your life right now. Uh, that, that's 100% true, but that probably wouldn't be helpful for that person to hear in that moment. Instead, the passage we're reading is really an encouragement to us when we're going through. It's to read this and, and realize, yeah, I, I am going through this season of discipline and hardship and God is my loving Father who's doing this to help me to grow. So if you have the friend who's going through it, I encourage you to listen and encourage, be empathetic and supportive. Maybe sometime down the road you can say, I, when I was struggling, I found Hebrews 12 to be an encouraging passage. Maybe do that. Don't send them a link of Pastor John's sermon if they're in the midst of a hard time. That, that might not be received well if they just shared that with you. But if they're ready for it, they'll realize that the comfort that we find in this passage is that our pain is not wasted in God's sight. For a believer, none of our pain is wet, wasted. Our suffering is never pointless. Because there are good results to come. And what are those good results? Well, if we endure, our text tells us two of these results that are there. The first is that we share, partake in God's holiness. Again, verse 10 says, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his, letter A in your outline, holiness. Holiness. By holiness, I mean that we're separate, we're removed from evil and sin. Our character is distinct like God. We reflect who he is in our lives. Because without discipline in our lives, we would just go astray after any of our own desires. But discipline helps us turn away from the distractions of this world. The sinful ones, and, and the ones that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but discipline helps us turn away from them 
to focus on God and on our need for godly character in our lives. Suffering often puts us in a place where we are able to grow. The book of the Bible that comes right after Hebrews is the letter of the Apostle James. In the beginning of James, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, what is it happens? It produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, patience, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James doesn't use the word holiness, but that's what he's talking about. These trials shape our character so that we look more like God. Discipline and suffering helps us grow in holiness. Now, it's not a place we'll arrive at this earth. We won't reach the place I'm perfectly holy right now. That that won't happen. There will always be room to grow in life. But that pursuit of holiness is what he calls his people to. So discipline brings holiness into our lives, but it also, our text says, brings the peaceful or peaceable fruit of righteousness. It also brings righteousness or righteousness and peace or righteous living. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. By righteousness, we're being talking about, we're talking about being conformed, shaped to God's image, looking like God, that His will directs our trust, what we believe. God's desires direct our actions. We know we worship God and live for Him. Our passage, though, tells us this is not easy. Discipline is not pleasant, joyful, or enjoyable when we're experiencing it in the moment. It it hurts. It's hard. But God has a purpose in it. The Christian apologist, author, C.S. Lewis, I, I think he summarizes it really well. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's in those moments of pain we realize, oh, this is how I'm supposed to be living for the Lord. Back in our text, it says, so that my translation has later, other translations have afterwards, later, afterwards, after the difficult discipline, a wonderful fruit, a wonderful result comes, righteousness in our lives. Friends, sometimes we, we only communicate part of the gospel when we share it with one another. Yes, God wants to save us from hell. Yes, he wants people to express faith in Christ, but expressing faith in Christ, just believing something in your mind, that, that's not the change God calls for. He wants people whose lives have been changed by Christ. When he saves us, he does a work in us. He makes us like his son. Because of his work, we do what is right. We look like our Lord. There's one very famous verse of scripture that actually teaches this. In the book of Romans, there's a verse that we sometimes quote in isolation, but we really need to read the verse after it as well. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we can define good however we want. Unfortunately, the author, Paul, he tells us what good means in the very next verse. 
He says, what is that good? Well, those who God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed, shaped, molded, to look like the image of His Son. The good God is doing in your life, if you know Him, is to make you like Jesus. That is what the good means. This verse does not mean if I had a bad day yesterday, well, then God has to give me a good day today. After all, God works all things together for good. That's, that's not what the passage is teaching. It is telling you that the bad thing happening today is serving the good purpose of making you more like Jesus. As Pastor George Guthrie says, God can redeem the pain we experience in life using it for our good. That's what Romans 8 is talking about. That's what our passage is talking about. The pain and discipline we experience, if we're a believer in Christ, God uses it for our good. It doesn't mean that times of discipline and hardship make us happy, but it does mean we can trust God in the midst of them. This discipline teaches us how to live rightly. Let me go back to the book of Peter for a moment. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. They're experiencing hardship, God's discipline. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, oh, this genuine faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, this faith may be found to have a result, to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the songs we sang right before I got up there sang, talked about that, praise, glory, honor to our Lord. That is the purpose the discipline and hardship should serve. This character of holiness and righteousness, this is what God wants to develop in you. This is how he is at work in your pain so that someday your life would reveal his good fruit that people would see, oh, God did an amazing thing in this person, molded, shaped them. We can see God's character so much in their life that they may glory, honor, and praise God. That is what will be seen at the end. But you may say, okay, well, that's great, Pastor John, that's what's going to happen at the end, but right now, what do I do now? How do I walk out of here with this message? Well, I think there's at least two applications that we can take from this passage today. The first application is that we should keep going. When times are hard, when we experience God's discipline, we should keep going. Trials are a call for endurance. We should not be discouraged, but keep going, keep following our Lord. I know on the outline I said the ver passage was verses 3 through 11, but uh, We'll talk about these verses a bit next week as well, but verses 12 and 13, the next two are really the application of what we've been talking about today. So let me read 12 and 13. We just said the purpose of discipline, that it's for the fruit of righteousness. And the author says, therefore, because of that, because that's what God is doing, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, so that you can keep going. God is making a straight path for us to follow. He may be using an image from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 4 says, Let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. 
Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is telling us that we have a race to run, a goal to pursue. Our lives are not primarily about our pleasure, about doing things that that we want when we want. Our lives are for God's glory. And if we change that perspective in our mind, we'll find great pleasure in it. We chase after His glory. So friends, brothers, and sisters, I think I'm speaking particularly to those of you who know the Lord. There's a lot of people in this room. I don't know each and every issue and trial that you're experiencing right now. There's no way for me to do it. And there's no way I could name every single possible thing you could be going through because we each have our own unique trials and suffering. But what I can tell you is I don't know what your struggle is, but I do know that it's worth it to press on. It's worth it to press on. And the reason I know that is because if we know Christ, eternal joy awaits in him. The English poet William Cowper put it this way, the path of sorrow and that path alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. That was beautiful. He's also a hymn writer, and so probably a line from a hymn. The path of sorrow and that path alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. Now, what I could do is I could just stop right there, say, have that hope in your future and, and live for that. But, you know, I, I think I can leave you with a better hope. I think I can leave you with something better to hold on to, not just a challenge to think about heaven and the joy to come, but a reminder of something you can do right now. And that reminder is all the way back in the very first verse we read today. Consider Christ. Consider Christ, your Lord and Savior. The key to our endurance, the key to perseverance through discipline, through trial, whatever it is, is looking to Jesus Christ. Any struggle we experience because of our faith, what we believe, Jesus experienced it too. Go all the way back to verse 3. Consider him. Consider Christ, the one who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. If we do that, it's for the purpose that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ. He was the Son of God, but he was mocked as a fool. He was the true king, but he was rejected by his people and killed like a rebel. His crucifixion on a cross was a terrible injustice, but it was God's needed course correction. Not for Jesus' life. God wasn't disciplining Jesus. There wasn't anything Jesus needed to, to learn or grow or change or sin to overcome. No, it was for us. It was the only way to bring us out of our sins into a right relationship with God. God loved Christ even before we existed, yet God led his son to suffer for our salvation. So friend, even if your life falls apart this week, even if the world gets worse, even if persecution increases, he will still be faithful because he is faithful to save We can view him as our model, our inspiration, but most importantly, we should remember he is the source of our endurance. If we are going to make it, it is only because we are laser-focused on him. 
the verse before, the verse we talked about the last time we were in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 2 encourages us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. Now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So if you're here or perhaps you're watching online and you do not know God, then look to Jesus for salvation. Turn from sin and look to him. And if you are a believer, then I'm going to say the exact same thing. Look to Jesus. Look to him to endure. Looking to him gives us the perspective that we need when we think about discipline. Looking to him helps us understand, oh, God disciplines his children. And God disciplines his children for a good purpose, that we would be holy and righteous. And so, brother, sister, if you are God's child this morning, then keep going. Consider, look to his son, your savior, because he alone is worthy.